Chapter Two of Captain's Courageous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Captain's Courageous, by Rudyard Kipling, Chapter Two. I warned you said Dan, as the drops fell thick and fast on the dark oiled planking. Dad ain't no ways hasty, but you fair earned it. Pshaw! There's no sense taking on so. Harvey's shoulders were rising and falling in spasms of dry sobbing. I know the feeling. First time Dad laid me out was the last, and that was my first trip. Makes you feel sickish and lonesome. I know. It does, moaned Harvey. That man's either crazy or drunk, and and I can't do anything. Don't say that to Dad, whispered Dan. He's set again all liquor, and, well, he told me you was the madman. What in creation made you call him a thief? He's my dad. Harvey sat up, mopped his nose, and told the story of the missing wad of bills. I'm not crazy, he wound up. Only, your father has never seen more than a five-dollar bill at a time, and my father could buy up this boat once a week and never miss it. You don't know what the weir here is worth. Your dad must have a pile of money. How did he get it? Dad says loonies can't shake out a straight yarn. Go ahead. In gold mines and things, West? I've read that kind of business. Out West, too. Does he go round with a pistol on a trick pony, same as the circus? They call that the Wild West, and I've heard that their spurs and bridles was solid silver. You are a chump, said Harvey, amused in spite of himself. My father hasn't any use for ponies. When he wants to ride, he takes his car. How? Lobster car? No, his own private car, of course. You've seen a private car sometime in your life. Sladen Beeman, he has one, said Dan cautiously. I saw her at the Union Depot in Boston, with three niggers hogging her run. Dan meant cleaning the windows. But Sladen Beeman, he owns about every railroad on Long Island, they say, and they say he's bought about half New Hampshire, run a line fence round her and filled her up with lions and tigers and bears and buffalo and crocodiles and such all. Slayton Beeman, he's a millionaire. I've seen his car. Yes? Well, my father's what they call a multi-millionaire, and he has two private cars. One's named for me, the Harvey, and one for my mother, the Constance. Hold on, said Dan. Dad don't ever let me swear, but I guess you can. Before we go ahead, I want you to say hope you may die if you're lying. Of course, said Harvey. That ain't enough. Say, hope I may die if I ain't speaking truth. Hope I may die right here, said Harvey, if every word I've spoken isn't the cold truth. Hundred and thirty-four dollars and all, said Dan. I heard you talking to Dad, and I'd half looked you to be swallowed up, same as Jonah. 
Harvey protested himself red in the face. Dan was a shrewd young person along his own lines, and ten minutes' questioning convinced him that Harvey was not lying. Much. Besides, he had bound himself by the most terrible oath known to boyhood, and yet he sat, alive, with a red-ended nose, in the scuppers, recounting marvels upon marvels. "'Gosh!' said Dan at last, from the very bottom of his soul, when Harvey had completed an inventory of the car named in his honour. Then a grin of mischievous delight overspread his broad face. "'I believe you, Harvey. Dad's made a mistake for once in his life.' "'He has, sure,' said Harvey, who was meditating an early revenge. "'He'll be mad clear through. Dad just hates to be mistook in his judgments.' Dan lay back and slapped his thigh. "'Oh, Harvey, don't you spoil the catch by letting on.' "'I don't want to be knocked down again. I'll get even with him, though.' "'Never heard any man ever got even with Dad. But he'd knock you down again, sure. The more he was mistook, the more he'd do it. But gold mines and pistols—' "'I never said a word about pistols.' Harvey cut in, for he was on his oath. "'That's so. No more you did. Two private cars, then, one name for you, and one for her, and two hundred dollars a month pocket-money, all knocked into the scuppers for not working for ten and a half a month. It's the top haul of the season!' <laughs> he exploded with noiseless chuckles. "'Then I was right?' said Harvey, who thought he had found a sympathizer. "'You was wrong, the wrongest kind of wrong. You take right hold and pitch in alongside of me, or you'll catch it, and I'll catch it for backing you up. Dad always gives me double helps, cause I'm his son, and he hates favoring folk. Guess you're kind of mad at Dad. I've been that way time and again, but Dad's a mighty just man. All the fleet says so.' looks like justice this don't it harvey pointed to his outraged nose that's nothing lets the shore blood out of you dad did it for your health say though i can't have dealings with a man that thinks me or dad or any one on the we're here's a thief we ain't any common wharf end crowd by any manner of means we're fishermen and we've shipped together for six years and more don't you make any mistake on that I told you Dad don't let me swear. He calls em vain oaths, and pounds me. But if I could say what you said about your pap and his fixins, I'd say that bout your dollars. I'd know what was in your pockets when I dried your kit, for I didn't look to see. But I'd say, using the very same words as you used just now, neither me nor Dad, and we was the only two that touched you after you were brought aboard, knows anything about the money that's my say. Now?" The bloodletting had certainly cleared Harvey's brain, and perhaps the loneliness of the sea had something to do with it. "'That's all right,' he said. Then he looked down confusedly. "'Seems to me that for a fellow just saved from drowning I haven't been over and above grateful, Dan.' "'Well, you was shook up and silly,' said Dan. Anyway, there was only Dad and me aboard to see it. The cook, he don't count. I might have thought about losing the bills that way, Harvey said, half to himself. 
instead of callin' everybody inside a thief. Where's your father? In the cabin. What do you want of him again? You'll see, said Harvey, and he stepped, rather groggily, for his head was still singing, to the cabin steps where the little ship's clock hung in plain sight of the wheel. Troop, in the chocolate and yellow painted cabin, was busy with a notebook and an enormous black pencil, which he sucked hard from time to time. "'I haven't acted quite right,' said Harvey, surprised at his own meekness. "'What's wrong now?' said the skipper. "'Walked into Dan, have you?' "'No, it's about you.' "'I'm here to listen.' "'Well, I—I'm here to take things back,' said Harvey, very quickly. "'When a man's saved from drowning—' he gulped. "'Eh? You'll make a man yet if you go on this way.' "'He oughtn't begin by calling people names.' "'Jest and right. Right and jest,' said Troop, with a ghost of a dry smile. "'So I'm here to say I'm sorry.' Another big gulp. Troop heaved himself slowly off the locker he was sitting on, and held out an eleven-inch hand. I mistrusted twould do you sights a good, and this shows I weren't mistook in my judgments. A smothered chuckle on deck caught his ear. I am very seldom mistook in my judgments. The eleven-inch hand closed on Harvey's, numbing it to the elbow. We'll put a little more gristle to that, for we're done with you, young feller, and I don't think any worse of you for anything that's gone by. You wasn't fairly responsible. Go right about your business, and you won't take no hurt." "'You're white,' said Dan, as Harvey regained the deck, flushed to the tips of his ears. "'I don't feel it,' said he. "'I didn't mean that way. I heard what Dad said. When Dad allows he don't think the worse of any man, Dad's give himself away. He hates to be mistook in his judgments, too. Ho, ho! Once Dad has a judgment, He'd sooner dip his colors to the British than change it. I'm glad it's settled right end up. Dad's right when he says he can't take you back. It's all the living we make here, fishin'. The men'll be back like sharks after a dead whale in half an hour. What for? said Harvey. Supper, of course. Don't your stomach tell you? You've a heap to learn. Guess I have said Harvey dolefully, looking at the tangle of ropes and blocks overhead. "'She's a daisy,' said Dan, enthusiastically, misunderstanding the look. "'Wait till our mainsail's bent, and she walks home with all her salt wet. There's some work first, though.' He pointed down into the darkness of the open main-hatch between the two masts. "'What's that for? It's all empty,' said Harvey. "'You and me and a few more have got to fill it,' said Dan. "'That's where the fish goes.' "'Alive?' said Harvey. "'Well, no. They're supposed to be rather dead, and flat, and salt. There's a hundred hogshead of salt in the bins, and we hain't more'n covered our dunnage to now.' "'Where are the fish, though?' "'In the sea, they say. In the boats we pray,' said Dan, quoting a fisherman's proverb. You come in last night with about forty of them." He pointed to a sort of wooden pen just in front of the quarter-deck. "'You and me will sluice that out when we're through. Send we'll have full pens to-night. 
I've seen her down half a foot with fish waitin' to clean, and we stood to the tables till we was splittin' ourselves instead of them. We was so sleepy. Yes, they're comin' in now." Dan looked over the low bulwarks at half a dozen dories, rowing towards them over the shining, silky sea. "'I've never seen the sea from so low down,' said Harvey. "'It's fine.' The low sun made the water all purple and pinkish, with golden lights on the barrels of the long swells, and blue and green mackerel shades in the hollows. Each schooner in sight seemed to be pulling her dories toward her by invisible strings, and the little black figures in the tiny boats pulled like clockwork toys. "'They've struck on good,' said Dan, between his half-shut eyes. "'Manuel hain't room for another fish. Low as a lily-pad in still water, ain't he?' "'Which is Manuel? I don't see how you can tell him way off, as you do.' "'Last boat to the southard. He find you last night," said Dan, pointing. Manuel rose Portugoosey, and you can't mistake him. East of him, he's a heap better than he rose, is Pennsylvania, loaded with saleratus by the looks of him. East of him, see how pretty they string out all along with the humpy shoulders, is Long Jack. He's a Galway man, inhabiting South Boston, where they all live mostly, and mostly them Galway men are good in a boat. North, away yonder, you'll hear him tune up in a minute, is Tom Platt, man-o'-war's man he was, on the old Ohio, first of our navy, he says, to go round the horn. He never talks of much else, except when he sings, but he has fair fishing luck. There, what did I tell you?" A melodious bellow stole across the water from the northern dory. Harvey heard something about somebody's hands and feet being cold, and then— Bring forth the chart, the doleful chart, see where the mountains meet. The clouds are thick around their heads, the mists around their feet. Full boat, said Dan with a chuckle. If he gives us O oh, Captain, it's toppin' full. The bellow continued. And now to thee, O oh, Captain, most earnestly I pray, that they shall never bury me in church or cloister grey. Double game for Tom Platt. He'll tell you all about the old Ohio tomorrow. See that blue dory behind him? He's my uncle, Dad's own brother, and if there's any bad luck loose on the banks, she'll fetch up again Uncle Salters, sure. Look how tender he's rowing. I'll lay my wage and share he's the only man stung up today, and he's stung up good. What'll sting him? said Harvey, getting interested. Strawberries, mostly. Pumpkins sometimes, and sometimes lemons and cucumbers. Yes, he's stung up from his elbows down. That man's luck perfectly paralyzing. Now we'll take a hold of the tackles and heist them in. Is it true what you told me just now, that you never done a hand's turn of work in all your born life? Must feel kinder awful, don't it? I'm going to try to work anyway, Harvey replied stoutly. Only it's all dead new. Lay a hold of that tackle, then, behind you." Harvey grabbed at a rope and long iron hook dangling from one of the stays of the mainmast, while Dan pulled down another that ran from something he called a topping lift, as Manuel drew alongside in his loaded dory. The Portuguese smiled a brilliant smile that Harvey learned to know well later, and a short-handled fork began to throw fish into the pen on deck.
Two hundred and thirty-one!' he shouted. "'Give him the hook,' said Dan, and Harvey ran it into Manuel's hands. He slipped it through a loop of rope at the dory's bow, caught Dan's tackle, hooked it to the stern becket, and clambered into the schooner. "'Pull!' shouted Dan, and Harvey pulled, astonished to find how easily the dory rose. "'Hold on, she don't nest in the cross-trees!' <laughs> Dan laughed, and Harvey held on, for the boat lay in the air above his head. "'Lower away!' Dan shouted, and as Harvey lowered, Dan swayed the light boat with one hand till it landed softly just behind the mainmast. "'They don't weigh nothing empty. That was right smart for a passenger. There's more trick to it in a seaway.' "'Ha-ha!' said Manuel, holding out a brown hand. "'You are some pretty well now?' This time last night the fish, they fish for you. Now you fish for fish. Eh, what? I'm, I'm ever so grateful, Harvey stammered, and his unfortunate hand stole to his pocket once more, but he remembered that he had no money to offer. When he knew Manuel better, the mere thought of the mistake he might have made would have covered him with hot, uneasy blushes in his bunk. There is no to be thankful for to me said Manuel. How shall I leave you drift, drift, all around the banks? Now you are a fishman, eh, what? Ooh! Ah! He bent backward and forward stiffly from the hips to get the kinks out of himself. I have not clean boat to-day. Too busy. They struck on queek. Danny, my son, clean for me. Harvey moved forward at once. Here was something he could do for the man who had saved his life. Dan threw him a swab, and he leaned over the dory, mopping up the slime clumsily, but with great good will. "'Hike out the footboards. They slide in them grooves,' said Dan. "'Swab em and lay em down. Never let a footboard jam. You may want her bad some day. Here's Long Jack.' A stream of glittering fish flew into the pen from a dory alongside. "'Manuel, you take the tackle. I'll fix the tables.' Harvey clear Manuel's boat. Long Jack's nestin' on the top of her. Harvey looked up from his swabbing at the bottom of another dory just above his head. "'Just like the engine puzzle boxes, ain't they?' said Dan as the one boat dropped into the other. "'Takes to it like a duck to water,' said Long Jack, a grisly-chinned, long-lipped Galway man, bending to and fro exactly as Manuel had done. Disco in the cabin growled up the hatchway, and they could hear him suck his pencil. "'One hundred and forty-nine and a half! Bad luck to ye, Discobulus!' said Long Jack. "'I'm murdering myself to fill up your pockets. Slate it for a bad catch. The Portuguese has bait me!' Whack came another dory alongside, and more fish shot into the pen. Two hundred and three. Let's look at the passenger.' The speaker was even larger than the Galway man, and his face was made curious by a purple cut running slantwise from his left eye to the right corner of his mouth. Not knowing what else to do, Harvey swabbed each dory as it came down, pulled out the footboards, and laid them in the bottom of the boat. "'He's caught on good,' said the scarred man, who was Tom Platt, watching him critically. "'There are two ways of doing everything. One's Fisher fashion.' any end first and a slippery hitch over all, and the others—what we did on the old Ohio, 
Dan interrupted, brushing into the knot of men with a log board on legs. "'Get out of here, Tom Platt, and leave me fix the tables.' He jammed one end of the board into two nicks in the bulwarks, kicked out the leg, and ducked just in time to avoid a swinging blow from the man-o'-war's man. "'And they did that on the Ohio, too, Danny. See?' said Tom Platt, laughing. "'Guess they were swivel-eyed, then, for it didn't get home, and I know who'll find his boots on the main truck if he don't leave us alone. Haul ahead. I'm busy, can't you see?' "'Danny, you lie on the cable and sleep all day,' said Long Jack. "'You're the height of impotence, and I'm persuaded you'll corrupt our supercargo in a week.' "'His name's Harvey,' said Dan, waving two strangely shaped knives and he'll be worth five of any South Boston clam-digger for long." He laid the knives tastefully on the table, cocked his head on one side, and admired the effect. "'I think it's forty-two, said a small voice overside, and there was a roar of laughter as another voice answered, "'Then my luck's turned for once, cause I'm forty-five, though I'd be stung out of all shape. Forty-two or forty-five, I've lost count the small voice said. "'It's Penn and Uncle Salter's counting catch. This beats the circus any day,' said Dan. "'Just look at them.' "'Come in, come in,' roared Long Jack. "'It's wet out yonder, children.' Forty-two, you said. That was Uncle Salter's. "'I can't again, then,' the voice replied meekly. The two dories swung together and bunted into the schooner's side. "'Patience of Jerusalem!' snapped Uncle Salters, backing water with a splash. "'What possessed a farmer like you to set foot in a boat beats me. You've nigh stove me all up.' "'I'm sorry, Mr. Salters. I came to see on account of nervous dyspepsia. You advised me, I think.' "'You and your nervous dyspepsia be drowned in the whale-hole!' roared Uncle Salters, a fat and tubbly little man. "'You're coming down on me again.' Did you say forty-two or forty-five? I've forgotten, Mr. Salters. Let's count. Don't see as it could be forty-five. I'm forty-five, said Uncle Salters. You count careful, Pen. Disco Troop came out of the cabin. Salters, you pitch your fish in now at once, he said in the tone of authority. Don't spoil the catch, Dad, Dan murmured. Them two are only just beginning. "'Mother of delight! He's forking them one by one!' howled Long Tom, as Uncle Salters got to work laboriously, the little man in the other dory counting a line of notches on the gunwale. "'That was last week's catch,' he said, looking up plaintively, his forefinger where he had left off. Manuel nudged Dan, who darted to the after-tackle, and leaning far overside slipped the hook into the stern-rope as Manuel made her fast forward. The others pulled gallantly and swung the boat in, man, fish, and all. "'One, two, four, nine, said Tom Platt, counting with a practiced eye. Forty-seven. Pen, you're it!' Dan let the after-tackle run, and slid him out of the stern onto the deck amid a torrent of his own fish. "'Hold on!' roared Uncle Salters, bobbing by the waist. "'Hold on! I'm a bit mixed up on my count!' 
He had no time to protest, but was hove inboard and treated like Pennsylvania. Forty-one, said Tom Platt. Beat by a farmer, Salters, and you such a sailor, too. Twarn't fair count, said he, stumbling out of the pen, and I'm all stung up to pieces. His thick hands were puffy and mottled purply white. Some folks will find strawberry bottom, said Dan, addressing the newly risen moon, if they have to dive for it, seems to me. And others, said Uncle Salters, eats the fat of the land in sloth and mocks their own blood-kin. Seechy, seechy, a voice Harvey had not heard called from the forecastle. Disco Troop, Tom Platt, Long Jat, and Salters went forward on the word. Little Penn bent above his square deep-sea reel and the tangled cod-lines. Manuel lay down full length on the deck, and Dan dropped into the hold, where Harvey heard him banging casks with a hammer. "'Salt,' he said, returning. "'Soon as we're through supper we get the dressing down. You'll pitch to Dad. Tom Platt and Dad, they stow together, and you'll hear em arguing. We're second half, you and me, and Manuel and Penn, the youth and beauty of the boat.' "'What's the good of that?' said Harvey. "'I'm hungry.' "'They'll be through in a minute. Sniff! She smells good to-night. Dad ships a good cook if he do suffer with his brother. It's a full catch to-day, ain't it?' He pointed to the pens piled high with cod. "'What water did you have, Manuel?' Twenty-five, father,' said the Portuguese, sleepily. "'They strike on good and queek.' Some day I show you, Harvey. The moon was beginning to walk on the still sea before the elder men came aft. The cook had no need to cry second half. Dan and Manuel were down at the hatch and at table ere Tom Platt, last and most deliberate of the elders, had finished wiping his mouth with the back of his hand. Harvey followed Penn and sat down before a tin pan of cod's tongues and sounds, mixed with scraps of pork and fried potato a loaf of hot bread, and some black and powerful coffee. Hungry as they were, they waited while Pennsylvania solemnly asked a blessing. Then they stoked in silence, till Dan drew breath over his tin cup, and demanded of Harvey how he felt. "'Most full, but there's just room for another piece.' The cook was a huge, jet-black negro, and unlike all the negroes Harvey had met, did not talk contenting himself with smiles and dumb-show invitations to eat more. "'See, Harvey,' said Dan, rapping with his fork on the table, "'it's just as I said. The young and handsome men, like me and Pensy, and you and Manuel, we're second half, and we eats when the first half are through. They're the old fish, and they're mean and humpy, and their stomachs has to be humoured, so they come first, which they don't deserve. Ain't that so, doctor?' The cook nodded. "'Can't he talk?' said Harvey, in a whisper. "'Nuff to get along. Not much anything we know. His natural tongue's kinder curious. Comes from the innards of Cape Breton, he does, where the farmers speak homemade scotch. Cape Breton's full of niggers whose folk run in there during our war, and they talk like the farmers, all huffy-chuffy.' "'That is not scotch,' said Pennsylvania. That is Gaelic. So I read in a book. Penn reads a heap. Most of what he says is so. 
except when it comes to a count of fish, eh? Does your father just let them say how many they've caught without checking them? said Harvey. Why, yes. Where's the sense of a man lying for a few old cod? Was a man once lied for his catch, Manuel put in. Lied every day. Five, ten, twenty-five more fish than come he say there was. Where was that? said Dan. None of our folk. Frenchman of Aguille? Ah, those West Shore Frenchmen don't count anyways. Stands to reason they can't count. If you run across any of their soft hooks, Harvey, you'll know why," said Dan, with an awful contempt. "'Always more and never less, every time we come to dress.' Long Jack roared down the hatch, and the second half scrambled up at once. The shadow of the masts and rigging, with the never-furled riding-sail, rolled to and fro on the heaving deck in the moonlight, and the pile of fish by the stern shone like a dump of fluid silver. In the hold there were tramplings and rumblings where Disco Troop and Tom Platt moved among the salt-bins. Dan passed Harvey a pitchfork, and led him to the inboard end of the rough table, where Uncle Salters was drumming impatiently with a knife-haft. A tub of salt-water lay at his feet. "'You pitch to Dad and Tom Platt down the hatch, and take care Uncle Salters don't cut your eye out,' said Dan, swinging himself into the hold. "'I'll pass salt below.' Penn and Manuel stood knee-deep among cod in the pen, flourishing drawn knives. Long Jack, a basket at his feet and mittens on his hands, faced Uncle Salters at the table, and Harvey stared at the pitchfork and the tub. "'Hi!' shouted Manuel, stooping to the fish, and bringing one up with a finger under its gill and a finger in its eye. He laid it on the edge of the pen, the knife-blade glimmered with a sound of tearing, and the fish, slit from throat to vent, with a nick on either side of the neck, dropped at Long Jack's feet. "'Hi!' said Long Jack, with a scoop of his mittened hand. The cod's liver dropped in the basket. Another wrench and scoop sent the head and offal flying, and the empty fish slid across to Uncle Salters, who snorted fiercely. There was another sound of tearing, the backbone flew over the bulwarks, and the fish, headless, gutted and open, splashed in the tub, sending the salt water into Harvey's astonished mouth. After the first yell, the men were silent. The cod moved along as though they were alive, and long ere Harvey had ceased wondering at the miraculous dexterity of it all, his tub was full. "'Pitch!' grunted Uncle Salters, without turning his head, and Harvey pitched the fish by twos and threes down the hatch. "'Hi! Pitch em bunchy!' shouted Dan. "'Don't scatter! Uncle Salters is the best splitter in the fleet. Watch him mind his book!' Indeed, it looked a little as though the round uncle were cutting magazine pages against time. Manuel's body, cramped over it from the hips, stayed like a statue, but his long arms grabbed the fish without ceasing. Little Penn toiled valiantly, but it was easy to see he was weak. Once or twice Manuel found time to help him without breaking the chain of supplies, and once Manuel howled because he had caught his finger in a Frenchman's hook. These hooks are made of soft metal, to be rebent after use, but the cod very often get away with them and are hooked again elsewhere, and that is one of the many reasons why the Gloucester boats despise the Frenchmen. 
Down below the rasping sound of rough salt rubbed on rough flesh sounded like the whirring of a grindstone. A steady undertune to the click-nick of the knives in the pen, the wrench and shloop of torn heads, dropped liver, and flying offal, the carah of Uncle Salter's knife scooping away backbones, and the flap of wet, opened bodies falling into the tub. At the end of an hour Harvey would have given the world to rest, for fresh, wet cod weigh more than you would think, and his back ached with the steady pitching. But he felt for the first time in his life that he was one of a working gang of men, took pride in the thought, and held on sullenly. Knife-o! shouted Uncle Salters, at last. Penn doubled up, gasping among the fish. Manuel bowed back and forth to supple himself, and Long Jack leaned over the bulwarks. The cook appeared, noiseless as a black shadow, collected a mass of backbones and heads, and retreated. "'Blood ends for breakfast and head chowder,' said Long Jack, smacking his lips. "'Knife-ho!' repeated Uncle Salters, waving the flat, curved splitter's weapon. "'Look by your foot, Harve!' cried Dan below. Harvey saw half a dozen knives stuck in a cleat in the hatch combing. He dealt these around, taking over the dulled ones. "'Water!' said Disco Troop. "'Scuttlebutt's forward, and the dipper's alongside. Hurry, Harve!' said Dan. He was back in a minute with a big dipper full of stale brown water, which tasted like nectar and loosed the jaws of Disco and Tom Platt. "'These are cod,' said Disco. "'They ain't Damascus figs, Tom Platt, nor yet silver bars. I've told you that every single time since we've sailed together.' "'A matter of seven seasons,' returned Tom Platt, coolly. "'Good stowin's good stowin' all the same, and there's a right and a wrong way of stowin' ballast, even. If you'd ever seen four hundred ton of iron set into the—' Hi! With a yell from Manuel, the work began again, and never stopped till the pen was empty. The instant the last fish was down, Disco Troop rolled aft to the cabin with his brother. Manuel and Long Jack went forward. Tom Platt only waited long enough to slide home the hatch, ere he too disappeared. In half a minute Harvey heard deep snores in the cabin, and he was staring blankly at Dan and Penn. "'I did a little better that time, Danny.' said Penn, whose eyelids were heavy with sleep. But I think it is my duty to help clean. "'Wouldn't have your conscience for a thousand quintal,' said Dan. "'Turn in, Penn. You've no call to do boys' work. Draw a bucket, Harvey. Oh, Penn, dump these in the gurry butt for you sleep. Can you keep awake that long?' Penn took up the heavy basket of fish-livers, emptied them into a cask with a hinged top lashed by the forecastle. Then he too dropped out of sight in the cabin. Boys clean up after dressing down, and first watch in calm weather is boys' watch on the weir here. Dan sluiced the pen energetically, unshipped the table, set it up to dry in the moonlight, ran the red knife-blades through a wad of oakum, and began to sharpen them on a tiny grindstone, as Harvey threw offal and backbones overboard under his direction. At the first splash a silvery-white ghost rose bolt upright from the oily water, and sighed a weir whistling sigh. Harvey started back with a shout, but Dan only laughed. "'Grampus!' said he. "'Beggin' for fish-heads. 
They upend that way when they're hungry. Breath on him like the doleful tombs, ain't he? A horrible stench of decayed fish filled the air as the pillar of white sank, and the water bubbled oilily. Ain't you never seen a grampus upend before? You'll see him by hundreds for you're through. Say, it's good to have a boy aboard again. Otto was too old, and a duchy at that. Him and me we fought considerable. Wouldn't have cared for that if he'd had a Christian tongue in his head. Sleepy? Dead sleepy, said Harvey, nodding forward. Mustn't sleep on watch. Rouse up and see if our anchor light's bright and shining. You're on watch now, Harve. Pshaw, what's to hurt us? Bright as day. Just when things happen, Dad says, fine weather's good sleepin', and for you know maybe you're cut in two by a liner, and seventeen brass-bound officers, all gentlemen, lift their hand to it that your lights was out and there was a thick fog. Harve, I've kind of took to you, but if you nod once more I'll lay into you with a rope's end. The moon, who sees many strange things on the banks, looked down on a slim youth in knickerbockers and a red jersey, staggering around the cluttered decks of a seventy-ton schooner, while behind him, waving a knotted rope, walked, after the manner of an executioner, a boy who yawned and nodded between the blows he dealt. The lashed wheel groaned and kicked softly, the riding sail slatted a little in the shifts of the light wind, the windlass creaked, and the miserable procession continued. Harvey expostulated, threatened, whimpered, and at last wept outright, while Dan, the words clotting on his tongue, spoke of the beauty of watchfulness, and slashed away with the rope's end, punishing the dories as often as he hit Harvey. At last the clock in the cabin struck ten, and upon the tenth stroke little Penn crept on deck. He found two boys in two tumbled heaps, side by side on the main hatch, so deeply asleep that he actually rolled them to their berths. End of chapter.